Welcome to Machiavelli on the Ivory Tower. Our guest today is Dr. Siegfried Hecker, who is the former director of Los Alamos National Laboratory and one of this country's most honored nuclear scientists. Dr. Hecker has recently joined CNS as a distinguished professor of practice, and we are so thrilled that he could be with us here today. Sig, welcome, and thank you so much for making the time. Well, thank you, Sarah, and, and thank you, Hannah, for having me. I look forward uh, to the discussion. Oh, we do too. So Sig, let me start us off here. Um, you have a forthcoming book with Elliot Serbin, which is called Hinge Points, an inside look at North Korea's nuclear program. And in this book, you offer an account of the North Korean nuclear issue that really tracks the nuclear and political developments in that country side by side and analyzes you know, how they intersected and the points at which they diverged. And part of what you argue is that Pyongyang was following what you call a dual track strategy of diplomacy and nuclear development. And you identify in your book a number of these key moments, which you call hinge points, where Washington failed to sort of weigh the risks and rewards presented by a particular combination of those nuclear and political factors. So I'm hoping you can start us off by helping us kind of set the scene here um, and explain a little bit more about what the DPRK's dual track strategy really was, and, and maybe tell us a bit more about your new book itself. Well, thank you. Uh, the book was a long time in the making, I, I must say, probably altogether about four years. Uh, but it's slated to come out by Stanford University Press uh, on January 10th uh, for public release. So uh, it's close, uh, and I'll be happy when it finally happens. Uh, so as far uh, as as you indicated, one of the, the main points to try to make is the fact that the United States government really did not understand uh, the North Korean approach and sort of the North Korean motives, you know, the drivers for, for North Korea. Uh, and, and what I posit in the book is to say that they've had this dual track strategy. Uh, actually, if, if I go back in dual track, I can go all the way back uh, to essentially right after the Korean War, where the dual track uh, of Kim Il-sung, uh, the leader, was really, it was a nuclear track with civilian and military applications. Uh, and so he focused early on on civilian because he was able to get help from the Soviet Union, but he always had the military, you know, as part uh, of his agenda. So that, that was the uh, the dual track part. However, then what I focus on in the book is the dual track that, that I believe actually came to be uh, when the, and at the end of the Cold War. So as the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, Kim Il-sung at that point decided that perhaps he needed to explore diplomacy, diplomacy with the United States, because in essence, he was being abandoned uh, by the Soviet Union. And in fact, I mean, he was, because after the dissolution, uh, President Yeltsin from Russia essentially had no use for the North Koreans. And so, so their benefactors all of a sudden were gone. And, and China, which had been a longtime friend and ally, uh, recognized South Korea. And so North Korea at that point said, you know, perhaps we're actually better off by uh, trying to reach strategic accommodation with the United States. And so from that point on, so this is the early 1990s, the dual track that I believe that the North Koreans pursued was diplomacy, but also, so I'll just call it the nuclearization, you know, both the, uh, the civilian, but especially on the military end. 
And so that's what they followed then uh, for the next 30 years. And eventually when we get to where we are today, may not be any more uh, that way today, but it certainly was through uh, 2019. Uh, and what, what happened during that time and what I describe in the book uh, is they, they never abandoned either track. They never fully abandoned diplomacy, although they were very serious about diplomacy. And that was one of the problems on the US government side. A lot of our administration just never believed that these North Koreans were serious about diplomacy. Well, they were serious about diplomacy, but they also kept the nuclear weapons hedge. And so whether diplomacy or the nuclearization was either up or down depended then on lots of factors. You know, obviously the external factors as far as the United States is concerned, relationship with South Korea, the domestic factors, the technical advancement in the nuclear program, all of those things govern it. And so what I track in the book is how that dual track went back and forth. And at various times we had opportunities to try to come to some closure uh, with the uh, the North Koreans. And uh, those are the things we call the hinge points, sort of pivotal moments. And, and that's where, for the most part, we make the wrong decisions. That's super useful for setting the scene, uh, sick. And you just outlined the dual track approach. Let's come to those hinge points for a moment. Moments at which you argue Washington could have led the DPRK down the diplomatic path at a manageable level of risk. Can you take us through one of those hinge points that you analyze in the book and really sort of take us through your analysis of how a more sound, technically informed risk benefit analysis could have led to different US policy at the time and hence potentially do it to a different outcome? Well, that's that's a very good question. And, and you, you got right to the gist of what I try to show in the book is that in the end, uh, the US did not make technically informed risk management uh, decisions uh, at, uh, at these hinge points particularly. So the first really big hinge point uh, was actually uh, back in, in October of 2002. Uh, and I'll just have to back up a little bit to, you know, to say that uh, in Kim Il-sung, as I mentioned, where he looked for strategic accommodation to the United States, he actually walked down the path of getting to a nuclear deal. Uh, he died just before that was consummated in 1994. So his son, Kim Jong-il, took that over. And he did make the deal with the United States that was called the Agreed Framework during the Clinton administration. So that then went along and, and it, it had its ups and downs during that time frame. But for the most part, what's important by late 2000, sort of the end of the Clinton administration, uh, the North Koreans and the United States were so close to that strategic accommodation. Uh, that is, you, you may remember uh, that it was a visit of the highest ranking military uh, person, Marshall Cho, uh, to the White House in the United States, you know, just amazing. And then Madeleine Albright, a little later in October uh, of, uh, this was actually 19, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 2000, uh, went to uh, to North Korea. Uh, and so they were, they were so close, but then however, the Bush administration came in and, and key uh, individuals in the Bush administration, including Vice President uh, Cheney, Secretary of Defense Don Rumsfeld, 
Uh, and in the State Department, uh, John Bolton were adamantly set against doing any deal with the North Koreans. So then a, a couple of years, not quite a couple of years into the Bush administration, John Bolton uh, was determined to kill that agreed framework. And indeed what happened, he was given some ammunition because what the North Koreans did during the agreed framework, they had agreed to freeze their plutonium program, the reactor and the reprocessing of plutonium uh, in return for the United States, along with uh, Japan and South Korea, who would bear most of the costs of this, building them two big modern light water reactors. So that, that was in essence uh, the deal. However, at the same time, as I'd indicated, the North Koreans always sort of kept the hedge. And so uh, in the late 1990s, they resumed a uranium centrifuge program. Okay, well, that the Clinton administration knew that, but there were additional evidence came up during the early part in the Bush administration. And, and as uh, John Bolton has said in one of his books, that was the hammer we needed to shatter the agreed framework. So in other words, he was determined to end that agreed framework. And so after a visit of Assistant Secretary James Kelly to Pyongyang uh, in October of 2002, uh, in essence, the Americans killed the agreed framework. They walked away from that. Okay, the hinge point nature, and exactly to answer your question, uh, was such that at that particular time, the plutonium program was frozen. Okay, so the reactor was shut down. Uh, the spent fuel that had been sitting in the reactor had now been sitting in a, in, in a spent fuel pool uh, for eight years, but it contained about 25 to 30 kilograms of plutonium. In other words, you know, enough for five or six bombs. Uh, and it was there for the taking. And so when the Americans then said, you know, you cheated on us, you developed, you know, the uranium, you're developing the uranium path to the bomb, they walked away. So the reason it was a hinge point and the reason it was not technically well-informed because when they walked away, it allowed the North Koreans in six months time to reprocess that spent fuel, extract the plutonium, and most likely with less than a year to build the bomb. And in my estimate is they didn't have the bomb before. So that was the risk that they took. And the uranium enrichment program that they were so concerned about was in its infancy. You know, and I show in the book, yes, indeed, they had a uranium enrichment. It was in its infancy, and it would have taken 10 years or more <clears throat> to bring that to fruition. So they traded one risk that only took them six months to a year to get to the bomb, you know, for one that would have taken a decade uh, or more. That's a poor technically risk management informed decision. And then that indeed started the North Koreans, you know, really directly towards the bomb. And eventually after another hinge point, North Koreans then did the first nuclear test. So I think that was, that was sort of the big one initially because had the Americans stuck with that agreed framework, had they been willing to say, hey, look, this uranium enrichment, you know, you guys should not be doing this and let's figure out a way that you're gonna shut this down. Had they been willing to do that, had they built the light water reactors and lit up North Korea, you know, which for the most part had difficulties uh, uh, with, with electricity. 
that would have been very difficult for the North Koreans to walk back from. So they weren't willing to take the additional risk and walk down the path that could have led to North Korea never having nuclear weapons. We don't know, of course, if it would have gone that way, but the opportunity was passed up. Sig, I think I can guess the answer to this question based on what you've just said, but if you had to pick you know, one of these hinge points that you've just described as sort of the most consequential or the most significant, you know, what would it be and, and why? Well, so I, I would say uh, I just described the one that was the most significant because uh, at that particular time, uh, they had the opportunities to stop the North Koreans ever from getting the bomb. And particularly the, the most important part of that uh, on the path, you know, to developing the bomb. And, you know, it's it's interesting. And what, uh, what I do in the book is I actually, I describe my seven visits to North Korea. And the first one was in January of 2004. And that's after the North Koreans had you know, put the complex back up in operation, and in my opinion, and probably built the first bomb. Uh, and and the North Koreans, I, I went with Professor John Lewis, the North Koreans from Stanford. Uh, the North Koreans then showed me all of the requisite things uh, for me to go back and describe to the government, hey, look, they've, you know, they, they basically uh, have the bomb. We could have stopped them. However, let me just add, and, and we can get back to that later. Uh, and then the last hinge point, uh, was Hanoi in 2019 uh, when President Trump got together uh, with Kim Jong-un. And, and that, of course, by that time, we were in a much more dangerous situation. And Trump walked away. And that was the hinge point. That's great, Zick. I do want to come a little bit more to this US inability to react more adequately to these hinge points you identified. You actually already mentioned a few factors in your previous answers in inability to conduct technically sound uh, analysis and then incorporate it into policy deliberations. But you also mentioned a sort of US um, tendency to view DPRK motives as essentially malign, as the DPRK not being serious about the diplomatic path. Um, then there's possibly other explanations like a certain degree of bureaucratic inertia on the U.S. side, sort of a tendency across administrations to deal with certain policy problems in a similar fashion. I mean, what's the story here? What factor uh, in your mind explains this repeated inability to, to react more adequately to these hinge points? So to all of the possibilities that you mentioned, the answer is yes. <laughs> That's the, that's the short answer. <laughs> so al almost all of those things played uh, into it. I, I, I would say the, the most important one uh, was uh, what, what you indicate, sort of the issue of motives uh, and, and what, we, what the US government really thought was driving the North Koreans. Uh, you know, it, it was interesting, uh, Sarah brought to, to my attention uh, Zachary Shore's book, uh, uh, of uh, really, you know, understanding the motives, the drivers, and the constraints uh, of uh, of your enemies or, or your adversaries, uh, you know, what he calls strategic empathy, really understanding. And there were people in the United States who had developed that strategic empathy through lots of interactions with the North Koreans. Uh, but our U.S. government, for the most part, past the Clinton administration, just didn't have that sort of understanding. So I, I think that was the, the primary driver. 
Uh, and what's so interesting, and I try to bring that out in the book, is that you know the, the three administrations where we had the major hinge points and, and we had the issues, uh, we're starting with the George W. Bush administration, going to Obama, and then going to Trump. And it turns out they couldn't have been more different than night and day, and yet they made you know sort of the similar mistakes uh, and not understanding uh, the motives. So that was the major point. I, I would say, uh, you know, in terms of uh, bureaucratic inertia, et cetera, of course, the government has that all the time. <laughs> you know, whether it played any role here, I'm not so sure. What was more important was actually what, what I call sort of dysfunction and disarray uh, within the administrations and, and wild disagreements. You know, for example, in the second term of the Bush administration, uh, they had individuals like Ambassador Chris Hill, who had generally, he had the right idea as to what he needed to do with the North Koreans. So he was going off on one side. On the other side, though, uh, you had people like John Bolton uh, and, and also Bob Joseph, uh, and they were going in a different direction. And so there was sort of infighting. Uh, and then that all the way, that particularly was prevalent uh, at Hanoi uh, during the, uh, the last hinge point. Sig, let me revisit some of the things that you've said so far in your answer. So, you, you know, you talk about in your book the perception that technical capabilities can be just as important as reality. And it's definitely true that over the years, you know, Pyongyang has publicly hyped its nuclear and missile advances more often than it's talked about, you know, trying to hide them or, or things like that. Um, you saw this firsthand as you were just describing when you visited the DPRK in 2004, and you were really surprised by the fact that the North Korean nuclear specialists gave you such a revealing tour of their nuclear facilities. You know, they showed you your, their plutonium, um, and this was very surprising. But you also say in your book that, you know, separating perceptions of technical capabilities from reality requires a certain level of in-country presence, and that's something you were just talking about. Um, if that's true, I wonder what you think that means for our ability to manage the risks, you know, presented by other WMD arsenals, not just in in North Korea, but also in you know Russia and China, or maybe possibly Iran in the future. Considering that you have this deteriorating state of relations with these countries, that you know I can imagine will almost certainly have an impact on in-country presence, whether that's in the form of you know verification or inspections or that sort of thing. So I, I wonder what you think. Um, the lessons are to be learned from that and, and what they might mean for the future. Actually, that's one of my biggest concerns uh, with what's happening in the world right now. And of course, the, the big effect on the nuclear world right now uh, is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And uh, I think you've heard me speak uh, about the issue that to me, uh, that sort of shatters the global nuclear order that's been constructed over all of those years. And much of that nuclear order that we had was precisely for reasons that you indicate, for in-country presence, uh, not only technically, but even diplomatically. You know, even during Soviet Union days, uh, there was diplomatic interchange. You know, there were various treaties, discussions back and forth. And then during the agreed framework, uh, you know, Ambassador Bob Gallucci uh, met many times and his colleague and now my colleague, Bob Carlin, uh, was there. And that sort of interaction is absolutely key, again, going back to the Zachary Shore and sort of understanding drivers and constraints. Much of that comes from that sort of direct interaction. 
And of course, you know, my background, of course, and my interest is, is technical. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I try to say in the book is you have to marry the technical and the diplomatic aspects. And so it's important to have a technical understanding. Well, our diplomats typically over the years for technical understanding, they rely on our intel agencies. But North Korea particularly is an incredibly hard uh, you know, intelligence target. And yet, because they wanted to get certain information out, they had people like me that were able to go into their facilities. And it's not their facilities, you know, what was so fascinating. And actually, in the book, what I try to do, and I think, you, you know, my view is you, one actually has to read it. I try to take the reader inside of the Yongbyon nuclear facilities as I walk through the corridors of the reprocessing hot cell facilities. As I hold their plutonium in my hand, they not only showed it to me, you know, held it in my hand in the glass jar. And then when, when you read the exchange we had, then that finally gets you the idea, wow, this, what we can learn, not only what they specifically have technically, but what their objectives and what their motives may be, it is just really important. And of course, I, I did not, I should have said, in none of the seven visits I went to North Korea did I go as a government employee. Uh, you know, they were all track two. Uh, of course, with North Korea, everything is track one and a half because there is no private side on, on North Korea. So I, I, I went, uh, you know, as, as non-governmental. Uh, uh, and so we learned all of those things. And you know, I was in North Korea seven times, and you know that, Sarah, but I've been in Russia 57 times, and I've been to China 39 times, I've been to India, I've been to Pakistan, uh, and that, what you learn from those trips, what you, and, and this is not intelligence gathering, it's learning what their motives, what their capabilities are, and, pu and, and putting that together, and those are so key, and, and Sarah, that's right now what's broken, and so, uh, you know, I haven't now had any direct contact uh, with my Russian colleagues that I worked with those 57 trips since February 24th, you know, the invasion uh, of Ukraine. Uh, in China, uh, actually, what sort of derailed the China uh, interactions for now uh, was COVID, uh, and that I couldn't get back over there. They already didn't allow their uh, nuclear scientists to come here for the last six, eight years. Uh, and so I just went over there. And I also, by the way, I took young people along because uh, in the end, you, you know, it's the next generation that has to pick this up. So I wanted to get the next generation uh, to get to know their generation, to work together. Uh, and not, right now, all of that is halted, you know, with, with China, with Russia, uh, with North Korea. Uh, a few things are still going through the National Academies. That's one of the nice things, National Academies you know, do is also try to work with the academies on the other side. With China, they still have some things going. With Russia, we have nothing going. Uh, and so that is one of my biggest concerns uh, about, uh, you know, the invasion of Ukraine having shattered the global nuclear order. And the question is going to be, how are we going to rebuild it? Sick. Thanks for sharing this. I think it's it's absolutely fascinating and vital for our listeners to hear. And indeed, we can only hope that those kinds of exchanges between the US and countries of concern can become possible again in the future. 
Uh, I do want to ask you a last question about your book, and then we'll zoom out a little, a little more. It seems that um, one of the central arguments emerging from your analysis is that there was a real flaw in, in US policy sort of over time. And that was the singular focus on denuclearization rather than an attempt to manage the risk posed by the DPRK nuclear pro program. Now, what are the implications in your view for how the US should deal with other would-be proliferators in the future? In other words, what's the policy advice that emerges from your book? Well, it's it's interesting. Of course, I've, I've thought a lot uh, about that. For example, Iran, you know, which is a really big challenge. And even though I've never been in Iran, I came close to going there, but I never did get to Iran. But I've met the Iranians uh, in various places uh, around the world, and we've talked about their nuclear program. So, so let me give you sort of an example of, of a lesson learned vis-a-vis -vis Iran. So as I mentioned from North Korea, we did not uh, make technically informed risk management decisions. So when the Americans finally sat down with the Iranians uh, to negotiate the deal, you know, this so-called JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action with Iran, uh, I had actually had a chance to meet with the Iranian nuclear and, and diplomacy people just before the Americans got serious. Uh, that is September of 2013. Uh, and of course, I shared the, you know, my findings and my thoughts uh, with, with the Americans. But what actually happened during JCPOA, it was done correctly. And so, and, and what was peculiar at the same time while North Korea was going on and they wouldn't integrate the technology and the diplomacy, in Iran they did. And you can find many photos of their Secretary Kerry, Secretary of State, and next to him uh, is Secretary Ernie Moniz, who also turns out to be a good friend of mine for many, many, many years. And so Secretary Kerry brought the technical person with him. And Secretary Moniz, then since he was Secretary of the Department of Energy, he had all of the nuclear laboratories at his disposal to advise him, to analyze, uh, and he brought me in several times because I was no longer at Los Alamos, uh, I was at Stanford. And so they put together the diplomatic aspects and the technical aspects. Uh, and they really understood the risks they were taking. Uh, and, and the risks they were taking is they focused on the nuclear uh, uranium program. And there was gonna be a nuclear plutonium program, but the Iranians actually uh, really walked back from that one. On the centrifuges, they took steps backwards. The risk was the Iranians didn't want to put the missiles into that same deal. And so they made that decision to say, okay, you know, that's, we wish we could do the missiles, but it's better to freeze the nuclear program and walk it back because if they don't have the bomb fuel, they don't have anything to put on their missiles. So they made that decision. They knew there were risks. Uh, so, and then also they had uh, they had sort of timelines, uh, you know, uh, as to how long these very agreements would last. Although the one timeline the Iranians agreed to was never to build a nuclear weapon, yeah, you know, even though they said they would eventually get back uh, to enrichment. So they made that uh, that call uh, on the basis of everything they knew. Now, as I look, however, uh, for the lesson for the government in the future. 
Well, it turns out after that deal was consummated, uh, the Israelis brought new evidence to the table that the Iranians had a much, much farther advanced nuclear weapons effort than any of us knew. And so now what one has to do, and that's the lesson that I would apply is to say, I wouldn't just go right back to that same deal because we have new information and you need to make a new risk management decision. And that's the lesson you can take away, that lesson from North Korea, the lesson from Iran number one, as you go into Iran number two. And I think the same, the same goes, and you know, actually, quite frankly, I won't get into that in any detail, but, but India and Pakistan are so much more complicated and difficult yet, uh, because they are the real issues between the two of them. And, and we're, so, we're sort of an outside uh, player. Uh, and, and there's almost no way to get at the basic problem between, uh, between India and Pakistan. It goes back uh, you know, to the formation in 1947. So uh, there's some lessons to be learned, but each uh, has to be analyzed in its own way. I think that's great. I, I, you know, I want to sort of take us forward from thinking about lessons learned and, and in your book to talk a little bit more about contemporary policy for our last couple of questions here. Um, you might have seen that Toby Dalton and Ankit Panda recently put out a piece in which they argue that U.S. policy should really reflect Washington's own what they call quiet acceptance of a nuclear North Korea. And what they write in this article, and I'm going to quote them to make sure I get this right, is that the most important quality of any move towards an acceptance of a nuclear armed North Korea would be to openly acknowledge the nuclear deterrence relationship that exists between Pyongyang and Washington, and subsequently to pursue risk reduction negotiations that really begin from the premise that both sides hold a shared interest in averting nuclear war. So, you know, as one of the most foremost experts on North Korea's nuclear program in the world, could you tell me, you know, how that logic strikes you and, and what you think about that argument? So I've heard their argument before from, from both uh, uh, from Toby Dalton and from Ankit Panda. So, and, and, and by the way, you know, our own Jeffrey Lewis ha has made similar arguments. And as usually, Jeffrey, of course, does it in a very colorful fashion you know, <laughs> and make sure that people really understand uh, uh, what's at stake, but, but a, a similar uh, argument. So, so first of all, uh, uh, what, what they're saying uh, is a necessary step. In other words, um, saying that you shouldn't just focus on denuclearization. And you just said it before uh, that, you know, the focus uh, as far as North Korea is concerned has been the singular focus of the United States government on denuclearization. Uh, actually, you know, it's not, it hasn't been called the focus on demilitarization which would actually be much better because denuclearization is deeper than demilitarization. Uh, you know, the question is, what is de denuclearization? Does it mean no nuclear of any sort, no civilian nuclear? Well, you know, I know from my discussions with the North Koreans, they're not gonna accept that ever. They want civilian nuclear power. They want civilian nuclear medicine, you know, capability to make isotopes. They're not gonna walk away. So it's been so silly to say you have to denuclearize. And quite frankly, from Bush through Obama and to Trump, it's been denuclearized first. And what they're saying, what Jeffrey is saying, hey, look, that, that's a dead end. Uh, and so they're correct uh, that you shouldn't put all the focus uh, on denuclearization. Uh, you have to go in a different direction. 
and and so I you know I've read both of their papers and of course I've talked to them also uh, uh, over the the last few years and the part that I still don't like is when they say one has to accept North Korea you know as a state of North Korea, and say that to accept uh, and actually what's what's interesting and I have to give uh, uh, Toby Dalton and Ankit Panda credit. Until this piece that was just published in the last few days, uh, what they used to say is that we have to switch to an arms control uh, relationship. Uh, and when I've heard that and I've heard it directly, I said, no, 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 it's not arms control because that, that sort of puts North Korea out there in too equal a status with the United States as far as, uh, as, far as nuclear weapons. Are we going to get rid of nuclear weapons because North Korea is going to get rid of some? Heavens no, we're driven by Russia and by China, not by North Korea. And so they, they, they made an equality there. That just doesn't work, in my opinion. So this time they fixed that, okay? What they said is we have to move towards a nuclear risk reduction. And that's, that's the right uh, answer, move to a nuclear risk reduction. But whether we need to just state that Biden or somebody or Blinken, somebody states, hey, we accept North Korea, we don't need to say we accept them. We're already living with them you know, as, a, as a nuclear power. And so what's the right way to go? I've, I've actually tried as, as hard as I can for the last 10 years or so, uh, more than 10 years, to, to have the US government take a realistic view uh, and and say, hey, look, the North Koreans are moving along and they're developing better and better nuclear capabilities that hold that risk more and more of what we care about. We care about South Korea. We care about Japan. We care about the U.S. citizens in, in those countries. We don't want the North Koreans, you know, to hold them at risk. And then we care about the United States. And so that's ICBM. And as I've watched, you know, the capabilities develop over the year, they've just taken one step after another to hold more and more of our capabilities uh, at risk. And they've gotten, I mean, they've, they've gotten damn good at this, you know, from a standpoint of their missile capabilities. We still only know a little bit exactly how good their warheads are, but, uh, you know, my, my sort of bottom line is they can hold all of South Korea and most of Japan at risk with a nuclear warhead, not yet the United States, but, but they're working uh, in that uh, direction. Uh, and so uh, when I came back from my last trip, which turned out to be in 2010, so I took a trip every year, 2004 to 2010. When I came back, my last trip, uh, I, I was asked by uh, Secretary uh, Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State, uh, to come uh, and, and talk to her. And so I gave her a, a report of exactly what I thought North Korea had done. And that's when they showed Bob Carlin and me the centrifuges. You know, I mean, it was just mind boggling because I knew they had some centrifuges. They had gotten some from Khan, but to see 2000 shiny centrifuges, you know, in the centrifuge hall was just, my mouth must have dropped like that. Uh, so, uh, I came back, you know, and I essentially said to Secretary uh, Clinton, look, they, they now, they want you, they want us to know that they have the second path to the bomb, which they had denied for years and years. So they have the plutonium path to the bomb. The plutonium 
we have a very good sense of how much plutonium they could have made over the years because you make it in reactors. You can tell, Jeffrey Lewis can tell, you know, whether the reactors are operating or not. And of course, Intel agencies can tell. Uh, and, and then they've shown me enough of, of their uh, reprocessing facilities. We talked about plutonium metallurgy. And so we know enough to say, hey, look, they have somewhere less than 50 kilograms of plutonium at that time. Uh, it was uh, less than 30 or so. Uh, but now with the uranium enrichment, you can't see where the centrifuges are. You don't know where they're operating. The only reason we know for sure is they showed them to us because they wanted us to know. And what they were getting across to us is to say, you'll never know how much we have. And again, in my discussions with them, I knew that to put those centrifuges in this building that I visited, the so-called building four in, in Yangbyon, which they had done only in the last 18 months, because two years prior, I visited that building and it housed different equipment altogether. They gutted the whole thing. They constructed all of that. Our intel agencies didn't know that that's what they did until they showed me. Now that they're the, the message they were getting across, and you'll never know how many bombs we have. And so that's where we stand now. So I came back, I briefed Secretary Clinton, uh, and it was great brief. She was very interactive, very interested. And then at the end, I sort of took a, a step in the direction that you're asking from Toby Dalton, I'm Kid Panda from Jeffrey Lewis. And I said, hey, look, what we have to do now is to make sure it doesn't get worse. And so uh, I developed this concept that I called the three no's. So we know they have plutonium, we know they have enriched uranium, you know, they're firing missiles all over. So the three no's, let's focus with the North Koreans on no more bombs. So that means no more plutonium, try to figure out what happens in the uranium world. No better bombs, that means no testing. You know, focus on that. And then no export, because at that point we were still very much concerned uh, as to what they might be doing with Iran. We also, we knew that they had built a plutonium production reactor for the Syrians that the Israelis destroyed. And so we said, you know, no, no export. So I tried to convince, uh, you know, the uh, Obama administration, focus on those things. Then after Hanoi, uh, no, actually just before Hanoi, uh, my colleague Elliot Serban and Bob Carlin and I developed a set of color charts. <clears throat> uh, and we laid out the whole program, the development of that program. And at the end, we said, what we have to do now uh, is again, let's make sure it doesn't get worse. So take those steps. And we actually laid out the steps that could be taken. And we said, let's take an approach uh, and so instead of saying accepting them as a nuclear power, you know, we, we know they've got nuclear weapons, but we said, let's do something to halt, then roll back and eventually eliminate. And, and the key is to get the, the, the North Koreans involved. So let, let me just, this is a long answer, but there's one more really key thing that I wanna say, and, and that's what this current approach, whether it's from uh, Jeffrey Lewis or whether it's from uh, uh, Toby Dalton and Ankit Panda, or whether it's my saying, whatever, uh, is what's, what could have worked over all of those years that I mentioned and that I cover in the book uh, was indeed reaching across diplomatically to do what the Singapore summit actually concluded. And that is 
we're going to do both normalization, that's sort of the strategic accommodation. That's what North Korea wants. And uh, we're going to do denuclearization, although I called it, let's say, demilitarization. So we're going to do those two things. That's what's really important. And we had a chance all the way up to Hanoi because the North Koreans were hoping for this normalization part. They were still on the road to saying strategic accommodation with the United States may be a better bet than us, you know, being in uh, with China and with Russia. China, they've always felt that China has this heavy hand. You, you know, they're going to be the little kid, the, the China's, you know, uh, big country. Uh, and, and the problem uh, that I can see now as I look back, and I would essentially sort of, if there was a turning point, it may have been the Xi-Putin summit uh, on February 4th, uh, where they laid out that Russia and China are, are going to have a partnership with no limits. And, and, and so that could have been a time when, when Kim Jong-un actually said, you know, I'm going to align myself with these two countries now. They seem to be on the way up. Uh, and the Americans maybe have shown themselves not to ever want to get to the point where they recognize not so much just recognizing them as a state with nuclear weapons, recognizing them as a legitimate state. Okay, so we haven't really done that. And so now, what really worries me, it may be too late. And so the focus now has to be just saying that we accept them or, or you know, reluctantly accept them. That's not good enough. We got to get in and going back again to motivations in Zachary Shore, we got to understand what now drives Kim Jong-un and what drives the North Koreans and how do we actually get him back to the point where they even want to talk. Gosh, Sik, thank you for those very sobering uh, reflections. We do I have wish, time I, I, wish one... I could have been more positive at the end. They are sobering indeed. Um, we're coming to the close of this conversation today, which has been fascinating, but there's one last question I'd like to pose to you. Now, a major focus of our series here, Machiavelli in the Ivory Tower, is to bridge the gap between various forms of scholarship and policymaking. Now, you are a nuclear scientist by training, but as you show in your book, on your various trips to the DPRK, you've also benefited tremendously from the expertise of various colleagues who specialized uh, and had intimate knowledge of uh, the DPRK's culture, history, politics, or indeed who had firsthand experience actually negotiating with the, with the North Koreans. So I do wanna ask you what these, uh, these communities, the sort of scientific and technical community, and then those who study sort of the politics and the society of those those countries of concern, what they can learn from each other, and sort of what forms of knowledge exchange and communication between uh, those communities you found to be particularly useful, what kind of approaches work, and perhaps uh, which ones don't work so well? Yeah, again, that, that, that's, an, that's an excellent question. Uh, I, would, I would say that since I've done much of this interaction, you know, in the international scene, as, as I mentioned, you know, the many trips to, to Russia, to China. Uh, and so even early on, before I had the benefit of having good colleagues that understood the diplomatic part, I, I began to learn how important the cultural aspects, the human dimensions 
the history uh, was. And so with Russia, I really got into that. And actually it was my, my Russian uh, scientific colleagues that helped me because in my own view is sort of the average Russian, certainly the average Russian nuclear specialist has so much better appreciation for history and culture and the arts and, and everything than we do in the United States. They certainly have much more than I had. And so I learned through those interactions, particularly from the Russians, also somewhat from the Chinese, but more from the Russians, how important those things are. Uh, and, and so then knowing that, uh, I was able to take advantage uh, of the knowledge of a John Lewis, the knowledge of a Bob Carlin uh, and others who knew so much more. Carlin's been to North Korea more than 30 times uh, and he's worked with them much more closely. Uh, so, so he understood that better, but they were absolutely key uh, to my being able to then work on integrating the technical and the diplomatic and the policy and the human dimensions. So I've thought a lot about how, how does one do that? How, how do we make sure that the next technical you know, generation when it goes over there has a similar sense of the importance of that? Uh, and, and the diplomats uh, have a better sense and appreciation for the importance of the technical interplay of those. Uh, and, and I would say my, my best answer to that is uh, to say, how did I get to North Korea in the first place? Well, let me tell you, it's not because I wanted to go to North Korea. That was not on my travel list. It was also not on my wife's travel list. She said, okay, Russia, I've gotten used to, but North Korea. But anyway, the way I got to North Korea, is John Lewis asked me to go with him. And so John Lewis, if you go back now, and the lesson uh, that I think is important for the future uh, John Lewis was a China specialist uh, at, at Stanford, and it, and it was in the late 80s uh, that he, John Lewis, the, the political scientist, got together with Professor Sid Drell, uh, you know, one of the best uh, uh, physicists uh, in this country, and they decided that that's what is needed, the marriage of the scientific and the political science and diplomatic aspects. And they created uh, the institution that I was at for 17 years, the Center for International Security and Cooperation. Actually, initially it was called Center uh, for Arms Control uh, and, and Cooperation. Uh, it stays the same uh, acronym of CSAC. They are the ones that brought that together. And, and from the beginning of that center, what they did was to marry the diplomacy and the technical. So when John Lewis had been to North Korea eight times uh, before uh, 2004, when he asked me to come along, and through that interaction with Sid Drell and then uh, other, and Bill Perry at that time, Secretary Bill Perry, uh, who's a card-carrying applied mathematician in addition to former secretary. Uh, so then John Lewis asked me to come along because it was already in his makeup that you want to bring a technical person along. So I think the lesson, so when we look at places like our center here, the CNS, bring the technical and bring the policy people together. And of course, what I'm really pleased I came here, you have technical people and you, of course, I really have the policy expertise. And so that's what I would say, you know, whether it's a, a sort of an NGO organization or whether it's a university, 
try from the beginning, try from the very early years to have them understand that there is a marriage of the technical and the policy aspects that in the end is what's necessary to do good policy for the country. Well, I want to thank you, Sig, for this most enriching conversation and for joining us today on Machiavelli in the Ivory Tower. I think with everything that's going on with North Korea now, the recent missile launches and concerns about a prospective nuclear test, your book when it comes out in January and your account of really missed opportunities with North Korea over the last two decades will be most vital. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Hannah. Thank you, Sarah. It, it was a great pleasure. Uh, I enjoyed the conversation a lot. Thank you so much. And say hi to Machiavelli for me. <laughs> <laughs>